tuned in to our Neurology Revision series as part of our Finals Countdown program of episodes, targeted at final year medical students as you prepare for your med school finals. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most common and acute neurological conditions you're likely to see, stroke. We'll talk about ischemic stroke, which is overwhelmingly the most common, accounting for about 85% of all strokes, transient ischemic attacks, TIAs or mini-strokes, hemorrhagic strokes, and finish by very briefly touching on intracranial venous thrombosis. We'll talk about how these conditions may present in important differential diagnoses, their typical clinical course, salient investigations, and their management. Stroke is a massively incapacitating and frequently fatal condition, accounting for approximately 40,000 deaths a year, and is the fourth largest cause of death in the UK. It's thought someone suffers a stroke every four minutes in the UK, of whom a quarter die within a year. Of the remainder, half may be left with some form of permanent disability. No one really knows why a stroke is called a stroke, although it's thought it was first recognised over 2,000 years ago by Hippocrates, who named the condition apoplexy, which is Greek for struck down by lightning. So maybe that's how and why the name stuck. Consider it a bit of dinner table trivia on the house. The most common type of stroke, as we've already said, is an ischemic stroke, which occurs as a consequence of small vessel occlusion in the brain, leading to ischemia and infarction. The occlusion may be due to problems with the blood vessels in the brain themselves, or in situ thrombi, although often there's a thromboembolic event to blame, such as an atheromatous plaque from the carotid arteries, or an emboli that's dislodged from the heart, as we often see in patients with atrial fibrillation, which we'll touch upon later. There are a number of risk factors that may increase your risk of stroke, such as a previous history of heart disease, a smoking history, diabetes, and previous transient ischemic attacks, or TIAs. Conditions which tip your body into a prothrombotic or hypercoagulable state, such as antiphospholipid syndrome and thrombophilia, also put you at increased risk. It's important to consider possible differentials, which include space-occupying lesions, encephalopathy, such as Wernicke's or hepatic encephalopathy, drug overdose, and metabolic derangements, most commonly hypo and hyperglycemia. One of the distinguishing features is that strokes follow a much more acute course, with symptoms often maximal at onset and progressing over a period of about 6 to 24 hours. It's also incredibly important to distinguish clinically between an ischemic and a hemorrhagic stroke, since the management is obviously very different, although of course this is where CT and MRI scans come in. Clinical signs suggesting a hemorrhage include meningism and a new headache and someone perhaps already at an increased risk of bleeding, such as patients who are falls risks and on anticoagulation. Meanwhile, an ischemic stroke may be the likelier diagnosis in a patient with a background of ischemic heart disease or atrial fibrillation who's had a previous TIA with bruise heard on auscultation of the carotid arteries. The clinical presentation of an ischemic stroke depends on the area of the infarct. The stroke that most of us tend to think of, the one that should get us and members of the public thinking fast, accounts for 50% of all ischemic strokes and refers to a cerebral infarct, most commonly in the middle cerebral artery. This may present as ipsilateral facial weakness, contralateral sensory loss and hemiplegia, and is associated with uppermost neuron signs, 
although there may be an initial period of flaccid hypotonia. Other signs, again depending on the area infarcted, may include dysphasia and visual field deficits such as a homonymous hemianopia. The remaining 50% of ischemic strokes comprise brainstem infarcts and lacuna infarcts. Brainstem infarcts occur as a result of a blockage within the posterior circulation to the brain and may give rise to an array of symptoms depending on the location, such as problems with vision, quadriplegia, and, at its most catastrophic, locked-in syndrome. Specific vascular brainstem syndromes include Weber's syndrome, which produces an ipsilateral third cranial nerve palsy with contralateral weakness, and Wallenberg's or lateral medullary syndrome, which affects the posterior inferior cerebellar artery and causes ataxia, contralateral sensory impairment, facial numbness, and sympathetic dysfunction. For a more detailed explanation of these conditions and the anatomy of the brainstem, please check out my earlier episode on neuroanatomy and spinal cord disorders. Lacuna infarcts, meanwhile, are small infarcts affecting structures such as the basal ganglia, internal capsule, and thalamus. This may give rise to five recognised syndromes, ataxic hemiparesis, pure sensory, pure motor, sensory motor, and dysarthria, with cognition usually preserved. The progressive accumulation of these small infarcts may however lead to cognitive decline and secondary disorders such as vascular dementia. In terms of diagnosing stroke, much as members of the public are encouraged to act fast, facial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulties and time to call 999, so too are A&E staff encouraged to use the Rosier tool. This stands for recognition of stroke in the emergency room and can be employed to differentiate between stroke and stroke mimics by considering the time since onset, any associated seizures or loss of consciousness, and the presentation itself, such as whether there was arm and leg weakness, problems with speech and problems with vision. A higher score denotes an increased likelihood of the presentation being a stroke as opposed to a TIA or some alternate diagnosis, which can in turn guide further management. An urgent CT or MRI scan may be considered, particularly if the patient is being considered for urgent thrombolysis, to exclude hemorrhage or if there are unusual signs such as seizures or fluctuating consciousness. If there is a high index of suspicion for an ischemic stroke, then imaging can be delayed pending the acute management. Acute management involves optimising the blood glucose control, maintaining the blood pressure, Although it's important to not have rapid drops in blood pressure in order to maintain cerebral perfusion, commencing antiplatelet therapy, which is usually aspirin 300mg for two weeks, and prompt referral to your local specialist stroke centre for consideration of thrombolysis. Thrombolysis may be considered in very select patients provided onset of symptoms was less than four and a half hours ago and involves the administration of intravenous alteplase. Patients on anticoagulation or have platelets less than 100 or have had recent surgery are absolute contraindications to thrombolysis. Thrombolysis must be followed within 24 hours by a CT scan to exclude hemorrhage. Following the acute management, patients should be commenced on a long-term antithrombotic agent such as clopidogrel 75mg. Primary and secondary prevention should also be offered such as smoking cessation, cholesterol and blood pressure control and encouraging exercise and weight loss. It's also important to identify risk factors such as cardiac emboli on echocardiography, 
which are actually the cause of over 30% of strokes. Carotid artery stenosis on Doppler ultrasound or CT or MR angiography and blood tests which may be suggestive of an underlying vasculitis or prothrombotic process. On the subject of carotid artery stenosis, it's important to mention that carotid endarterectomy may be considered for patients in whom there's a greater than 70% stenosis. Rarely, genetic tests may be indicated to exclude weird and wonderful genetic causes, such as cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarct and leukoencephalopathy, or CADASIL. I had to do a presentation on it once as part of my third year neurology placement and still haven't forgotten what the acronym stands for. A party trick if ever I had one. One of the key risk factors for stroke is atrial fibrillation or AF. As the chaotic electrical activity may cause a clot to dislodge from the left atrium and embolize its way to the brain. In patients with AF, the Chads-Vask score may be calculated, which is a measure of a patient's stroke risk and considers factors such as their age, gender, and whether they've had previous blood clots. A score of greater than two merits consideration of starting an anticoagulant, such as warfarin, or one of the newer direct acting oral anticoagulants, or DOACs. The CHADS-VAS can be counterbalanced against the HAS-BLED score, which assesses bleeding risk, and can help inform a doctor's decision about whether or not to start an anticoagulant, and if so, the frequency of review. We'll move on now to talking about mini-strokes, or transient ischemic attacks, or TIAs. TIAs may be thought of as harbingers of strokes, as up to 15% of ischemic strokes are preceded by a TIA. A TIA lasts at most for 24 hours, although the duration is often much shorter, with symptoms again maximal at onset and lasting usually for 5 to 15 minutes. As with a full-blown ischemic stroke, Risk factors include carotid and cardiac emboli and hypercoagulable states. TIAs may present as a sudden onset focal neurological deficit due to a temporary occlusion of the blood supply to the brain. And you can sort of think of it as angina, but for the brain. Again, the specific signs and symptoms depend on the arterial territory involved, but a fairly common textbook or MCQ example is the phenomenon of amaurosis fugax which is a temporary loss of vision due to an emboli occluding the retinal artery. The workup and investigation for a TIA is much the same as a stroke and used to involve the use of the ABCD score. This was a risk stratification tool which determined the likelihood of patients with a TIA subsequently going on to suffer a stroke. Patients were scored for their age, blood pressure, the clinical features and duration of their TIA and their diabetic history with a higher score denoting a higher risk of stroke, and therefore the urgency of referral. The ABCD score has however been shown to perform poorly, and has therefore fallen out of favour. Instead, management involves administering aspirin 300mg immediately, provided there are no contraindications, such as patients on anticoagulation or who, or who have bleeding diatheses. Patients who have had a suspected TIA within 7 days should be seen by a stroke physician within 24 hours, and those who have had a TIA more than one week previously should be seen within a week. Management is again centred around risk factor control, adjunctive procedures such as carotid endarterectomy, and initiating antiplatelets. Moving swiftly on to hemorrhagic strokes, the three main types of bleeds in the brain you're likely to have to know about are extradural hemorrhages, subdural hemorrhages, 
and the most catastrophic subarachnoid hemorrhages, with the name referring to where the bleed has occurred in relation to the meningeal layers. A subarachnoid hemorrhage, or SAH, occurs as a result of a spontaneous bleed into the subarachnoid space, most commonly as a result of a ruptured aneurysm. This typically occurs at various sites within the circle of Willis, such as the junction between the posterior communicating and internal carotid arteries. There's an association with polycystic kidneys, aortic coarctation, and connective tissue disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. An SAH may present as a sudden onset, severe, worst headache ever, thunderclap headache in the occipital region, and is associated with vomiting, seizures, and photophobia. Patients may also note a preceding sentinel headache in the days and weeks leading up to the SAH, which may be thought of as a warning leak. Koenigstein, which is when the hips and knees are flexed at 90 degrees and further extension of the knee induces pain, and Brzezinski's sign, which is reflexive flexion of the knees in response to forced flexion of the neck, are also rarely observed, although they're by no means specific for SAH and are also seen in meningitis and encephalitis. The mainstay of investigation is a CT head, although an LP may be performed for patients in whom the CT is unremarkable, yet clinical suspicion for an SAH remains high. Importantly, the LP should be performed at least 12 hours after onset of symptoms to assess for xanthochromia, which is a yellowish discoloration of the CSF due to the breakdown of red blood cells and production of bilirubin. Any sooner than that, and it becomes difficult to distinguish between a true bleed and a bloody tap. Management in the acute phase includes regular neuroobs monitoring, maintaining cerebral perfusion, administering calcium channel blockers such as nimodipine to reduce cerebral artery vasospasm and resultant cerebral ischemia, and prompt referral to a local neurosurgical centre. The definitive management is CT or catheter-guided angiography to identify the offending vessels, followed by endovascular clipping or coiling, with the latter becoming the increasingly preferred approach. In about a fifth of patients, a rebleed may occur, often soon after the initial injury. Other significant complications include cerebral artery vasospasm and cerebral ischemia, which is the commonest cause of morbidity, hydrocephalus, and hyponatremia, due to SAH-induced syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, or SIADH. The two other main meningeal bleeds in the brain are very much your classic pattern recognition, word association, MCQ-type presentations. The first, a subdural hemorrhage, or SDH, occurs as a result of a bleed from the bridging veins between the cortex and venous sinuses. This leads to a hematoma formation between the dura and arachnoid mater, which may in turn lead to raised ICP and a midline shift of the structures away from the side of the clot. The midline shift causes tentorial herniation and coning, and may manifest in signs such as seizures and localising neurological symptoms such as irregular pupils and hemiparesis. A typical exam question may describe an elderly patient, alcoholic or other susceptible individual, who's had a fall and is now demonstrating the classic fluctuating consciousness, is more sleepy and demonstrating personality changes. An extradural hemorrhage, or EDH on the other hand, occurs secondary to trauma, usually a sloppy fielder who's dropped a dolly at long off. EDHs are typically due to a fracture of the temporal or parietal bone, 
causing a laceration in the middle meningeal artery and vein and the accumulation of blood between the bone and dura mater, which may again lead to the development of symptoms suggestive of raised ICP, such as a reduced GCF, vomiting and seizures. The MCQ favourite for EDHs is the lucid interval, which is a period of consciousness lasting anywhere between a few hours to a few days between the initial injury and subsequent deterioration due to raised ICP. Both SDHs and EDHs produce characteristic CT, CT head findings, with a biconcave shape in the case of the former and a biconvex shape in the case of the latter. I tend to remember it as an SDH producing a sickle-shaped clot, so S for SDH and S for sickle. Management in both cases involves timely referral to a neurosurgical unit for clot evacuation, for example through a craniotomy or burr hole washout. We'll just finish by touching upon intracranial venous thromboses or IVTs. This one's been a bit of a shift so thanks for sticking with me. Nearly there now. These are altogether much rarer than arterial disease and may present as seizures, reduced GCS, as well as focal neurological deficits due to herniation secondary to mass effect and edema. IVTs may occur within the dural venous sinuses, most often within the sagittal and transverse sinuses, or within one of the cortical veins themselves, known as cortical vein thrombosis or CVT. A CVT will lead to infarction of a given venous territory, leading to gradual onset stroke-like focal symptoms. If you're going to take away one thing from this little bit on IVTs, it's that CVTs may also present with a sudden thunderclap headache and are therefore considered SAH mimics, so a thorough workup is needed to, dif to differentiate the two. Investigation for IVTs includes CT or MR venography, and management is with low molecular weight heparin followed by warfarin, unlike in arterial disease where antiplatelets are preferred. Right, that's us done for yet another episode of our Neurology Revision series, part of the Finals Countdown program of podcast brought to you by MedTalks. We've talked about all things stroke today, ischemic stroke, TIAs, bleeds in the brain and everything in between. I hope you found this episode useful and we look forward to bringing you more episodes shortly. Please remember to subscribe to our channel, follow our Instagram page and check out our website for more great resources. Thanks.